Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello sports fans and welcome to this latest edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast where we discuss the best of sports from back in the day. I'm your host Dana Augusta and in this episode we're going to take a look back at the first Summer Olympics to take place in the United States. Now not too many people realize that the first ever Summer Games of the Modern Olympiad to take place here in America was in a city known mostly for beer and baseball. And that city is St. Louis, Missouri. There may be a reason why not too many people know it. The 1904 Summer Games in St. Louis could be best described as a total mess. Especially the marathon, where the winner was later disqualified, the person who was named the winner nearly died because of doping, and the person who finished fourth actually took a nap during the race and ran in street clothes. That's our main event. In our shout out segment later in the show, we're going to stay in the Midwest and highlight three stadiums that have anniversaries of them opening for business this past week. And throughout the course of their time have been points of pride as well as embarrassment. And of course, we'll have our top five. So sit back, pump up the volume. Because you're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a proud member of the Sports History Network. Hey there, football fans. This is Ross, the host of the Pigskin Tales Podcast. I just need a few moments of your time to talk about the host of the Pigskin Dispatch Podcast, Darren Hayes. He's expanded the pig pen to search out information on the history of all team sports. It's a quest to find out about the competitors, teams, and places chronicled throughout athletic history through the uniforms and gear the participants used and wore. And he is taking you, the listener, with him on this educational journey to preserve sports history on the Sports Jersey Dispatch, found here on the Sports History Network. His newest podcast, called Jersey Dispatch, is all based on the jerseys that all the greats used to wear. You can find Darren Hayes and the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, as well as Jersey Dispatch, on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that, Darren Hayes, the host of the Pigskin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch podcasts. It's found right here on the Sports History Network.
And we're back, sports fans, with this episode's main event. And we're going to go way back on this one. I'm Dana Augusta, your host, and I personally found doing the research on this main event very interesting. The United States has hosted the Summer Olympic Games on several memorable occasions. The times in Los Angeles in 1932 and in 1984, and they will host it again for a third time in 2028. By the time the Olympic cauldron is lit for that Olympics, LA would have joined London and Paris as the only cities to host the Olympic Games on three different occasions. In 1996, the Summer Games also came to my adopted hometown of Atlanta, Georgia, and who could ever forget the image of Muhammad Ali lighting the Olympic cauldron during the dramatic opening ceremonies. Yet most avid sports fans are not aware that the first ever Summer Olympic Games that took place on American soil was held in America's Midwest, St. Louis, Missouri. But the St. Louis Olympics was one of the most mismanaged and quite frankly bizarre Summer Games ever. It was the third Summer Olympics of the modern era, and with the success of the two previous Olympic Games, Athens in 1896 and Paris in 1900, the United States was looking for an opportunity to host the Summer Games themselves. In 1903, the city of Chicago actually won the bid to host the third Summer Games. However, that posed a major problem. During the same time the Olympics were to be held in the Windy City, St. Louis was going to be the site of the Louisiana Purchase Exposition, quite simply, the World's Fair. Now, organizers of the World's Fair was not going to compete with another worldwide event taking place at the same time of the world as the World's Fair. In the early part of the 20th century, the World's Fair was far more established and much more popular by, than the Olympics, and by that rationale, the World's Fair organizers began to plan its own sports events and informed the Chicago organizers that the World's Fair was going to eclipse the Olympic Games as far as popularity is concerned. When that happened, the founder of the Modern Olympics and the president of the International Olympic Committee, President Pierre de Coubertin, stepped in and awarded the Games to St. Louis at the last minute. The St. Louis Olympics began on July the 1st, 1904, and lasted during the, the lasted the duration of the World's Fair, which was until late November. Only 12 nations participated in these games compared to 26 countries that competed just 4 years earlier. There were two major reasons why. First, it was the Russo-Japanese War taking place and political tensions between the countries of Europe curtailed participation of the Olympics. But another reason was the difficulty of getting to St. Louis. You gotta remember, this is 1904, and most of the major roads in the United States at the turn of the 20th century was a little better than dirt paths, and getting to the middle of the United States during that time required great effort, and not to mention adding on a two-week journey coming by boat to North America from Europe. In all, just 651 athletes participated in the Olympics, with 645 of them men and only 6 women. The St. Louis Olympics was getting off on the wrong foot, and the games hadn't even really started yet. 
When the games did get underway, most of the competition took place at Francis Field at, at Washington University. Those events was archery, track and field, cycling, soccer, lacrosse, tennis, weightlifting, wrestling, and a popular sport in the early days of the Olympics, tug of war. Boxing, weightlifting, freestyle wrestling, and the decathlon made their Olympic debuts during these games. Also, there was, a there was the story of American gymnast George Eisler, who won six gold medals despite the use of a prosthetic leg. And also fellow American Frank Kugler, who won four gold medals in freestyle wrestling, weightlifting, and tug-of-war, making him the only athlete in Olympic history to win medals in three different sports in the same Olympics. However, those performances pale in comparison to what really made the St. Louis Olympics stand out. In the early days of the Olympics, the signature event of the Summer Games was the Marathon. And in the 1904 Olympics, the marathon could only be described as a mess. The marathon took place on August 30th and covered a distance of only 24.85 miles. This was in the years before the official distance was set at 26 miles. Now normally, the marathon begins in the early morning hours and ends before the heat part of the day in modern Olympics. However, the organizers decided at these Olympic Games, to start the race in the early afternoon with the temperature in Missouri hovering over 90 degrees. Now to complicate matters, most of the near 25 miles of the course was dirt, hilly country roads with minimal water supply. Race officials rode along in cars ahead and behind the runners which caused huge dust clouds that affected the runners. A total of 32 runners representing four countries started the race, but only 14 managed to just finish. When the dust settled, literally and figuratively, Fred Lords of the United States crossed the finish line first. But did he actually win? Lords crossed the finish line first with a time of 3 hours, 13 minutes, more than 13 minutes slower than the winning time in 1900. Now just before he was awarded the gold medal, and have his picture taken with Alice Roosevelt, the daughter of then-President Theodore Roosevelt, his substitute was revealed. <clears throat> Laura's suffering cramps had actually dropped out of the race nine miles and hitched the ride back to the stadium in a car, waving at spectators and runners alike during the ride. Yet when the car broke down at the 19th mile, he re-entered the race and jogged across the finish line first. Upon being confronted by race officials, Lawrence immediately admitted his deception, and despite his claims that he was joking, the AAU responded by banning him for life. This was later reduced a year later after it was found that he had not purposely tried to cheat. The winner of the marathon was awarded to Thomas Hicks, also of the United States, who had very interesting <coughs> race himself. Although he ended up the winner of the event, he was aided by measures that would not have been permitted, permitted in, year, in later years. Ten miles from the finish, Hicks led the race by a mile and a half, but he had to be restrained from stopping and lying down by his trainers because of the intense summer heat, humidity, and dust from the cars of race officials. 
from then until the end of the race, Hicks receives several doses of strychnine, a common rat poison which stimulates the nervous system in small doses, which was mixed with brandy and egg whites. He continued the battle onwards toward the finish line, hallucinating and barely able to walk for the, most of the remaining part of the race. His support team and coaches had to carry him over the finish line, holding him in the air while he shuffled his feet as if still running. Hicks had to be carried off the track and might have died in the stadium had it not been by the, the efforts of several doctors saving his life on the sidelines. During the race, he actually lost eight pounds during the course of the race. And then there was the interesting tale of Cuban postman Enderon Carvajal. Leading up to the Olympics, Carvajal raised money in his native Cuba to come to the United States to compete in the Olympic marathon. After raising enough money, he set sail for the United States and landed in the port city of New Orleans. While in the Big Easy, he lost most of his money gambling and had to hitchhike the remaining 800 miles to St. Louis, arriving in the Gateway City just one day before the event. Carvajal had to run in the event in street clothes and then he had to cut the legs of his pants to make it look like shorts. Not having eaten in 40 hours, he saw a spectator eating two peaches. He asked if he could have the peaches and the spectator declined. Then he stole the two peaches from the man and ran away. Later he stopped off in an orchard on the race course to eat some apples, which turned out to be rotten. The rotten apples caused him to have a strong stomach cramps and he had to lie down and take a nap. Despite falling ill from the apples and taking a nap, he still managed to finish the race in fourth place. This wild tale of the Olympic marathon was the identity of the 1904 St. Louis Olympic Games, an Olympic Games that was not only the most controversial, but the strangest. The United States, who had, far most, had by far the most athletes, racked up a total of 231 medals with 76 of them gold, while Germany finished second with just 15 total medals. And that was this week's main event talking about the 1904 St. Louis Summer Games and the wild marathon that took place during those games. Coming up is this week's top five, which includes a draft choice by a team that would forever change the course of the NBA and the birth of one of the greatest heavyweight boxing rivalries of all time. And later in the show, we're going to be, we're going to return to the Midwest and take a look back at three classic baseball stadiums that was located in the Midwest that are both famous and infamous. So stay tuned for that coming up right after this break. The Pigskin Tales podcast is all about the lesser known pro football players. Yes, there are stories about the ones we know, like Brad Tarkenton and Harold Red Grange. But have you ever heard of Ernie Nevers? How about Dave Osborne or even Grady Alderman? These men created their own path to the NFL. How did they do it? Listen to the Pigskin Tales podcast. Now streaming on your favorite music platform. Go to pigskintales.com.
Hello and welcome back to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we focus on the best of sports from back in the day. And just to remind everyone out there that you could follow us on Twitter at HistoricallySP2 to get your daily dose of sports history. And in addition to that, you could also drop us a line or two at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. That email address, once again, is historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. Now, in this portion of the show is our top five. And what we do is we count down the top five events of sports history that celebrated anniversaries this past week. Now, on this episode, we're going to take a look back at the people and moments that made sports history between the dates of June the 26th and July the 2nd. So, here we go. Number five, LeBron James from St. Vincent St. Mary's High School is the first pick of the 2003 NBA Draft. Prep basketball phenom LeBron James out of Akron St. Vincent St. Mary High School was the top overall pick in the 2003 NBA Draft by the Cleveland Cavaliers. His pick headlined what was what is considered one of the greatest NBA drafts of all time. As a whole, the draft contained 15 players who combined for 26 NBA championships and four of the top five were members of what was called the Redeem Team, the USA Olympic basketball team that participated in the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Following Cleveland's selection, the Denver Nuggets picked freshman Carmelo Anthony from Syracuse University who had led the Orange to their first national championship earlier that year. That was followed by Toronto's pick of second-team All-ACC Center and that conference's Rookie of the Year, Chris Bosh from Georgia Tech at the number four spot. At number five, the Miami Heat picked guard Dwayne Wade from Marquette, who had led the Golden Eagles to the Final Four for the first time since winning it all in 1977. Other notable players that in that draft included Central Michigan's Chris Kamen, who was selected number six by the uh, Los Angeles Clippers, and David West from Xavier, who was the 18th pick overall by the New Orleans Hornets. Number four, Sparky, manager, Sparky Anderson becomes the first manager in baseball history to win 600 games in both leagues. On June 29, 1986, George Sparky Anderson of the Detroit Tigers becomes the first manager to win 600 games in both the American and National League. Two years earlier, he became the first manager to win the World Series in both leagues when he led the Detroit Tigers to a World Series win over the San Diego Padres. Anderson, a decade earlier, was the driving force of the Cincinnati Reds to their back-to-back titles over the Red Sox and Yankees in the mid-70s. Those Red teams that featured Pete Rose, Johnny Bench, Joe Morgan, and Tony Perez, and others, was known, of course, as the Big Red Machine. Number 3. Maradona and Argentina claims the World Cup Championship. Also on June 29, 1986, Argentina, led by international soccer superstar Diego Maradona, claims his country's second World Cup in eight years by beating West Germany 3-2 at Estadio Azteca in Mexico City. 
The game came on the heels of the controversial semifinal game between Argentina and England where Maradona scored on the infamous or famous, whichever you want to call it, hand of God goal in the opening moments of the second half leading to Argentina's 2-1 win in the World Cup semifinals. In the final, which was a highly charged match that saw a then record six yellow cards issued, Jorge Barashaga scored on the 86th minute off of, Marad off of a Maradona pass for the 3-2 win over West Germany. Number two, a pair of Major League Baseball no-hitters on the same day. On June 29, 1990, Oakland's Dave Stewart and Los Angeles Dodgers' Fernando Valenzuela each pitched a no-hitter on the same day. It marked the first time in Major League history that a no-hitter was thrown on the same day in both leagues. Stewart pitched his no-hitter against the Toronto Blue Jays in the newly opened Sky Dome, while Valenzuela no-hit the Cardinals in Los Angeles. At the Sky Dome, A's ace Dave Stewart baffled the hitters for the Blue Jays recording 12 strikeouts and issuing only 3 walks in a 5-0 win over the Toronto Blue Jays. Later that evening, veteran pitcher Fernando Valenzuela equaled the feat by shutting down the St. Louis Cardinals at Chavez Ravine. Valenzuela also issued 3 walks, but fans 7 in the Dodgers 6-0 win. And finally, the top historical moment between the dates of June 26th and July 2nd was on June 26, 1959. Igmar Johansson knocks out Floyd Patterson for the heavyweight title. Throughout the history of boxing, there have been bitter rivalries, especially in the heavyweight division. One of the most famous got his start right here as Swedish boxer Ingmar Johansson made short work of then heavyweight champion Floyd Patterson when referee Ruby Goldstein stopped the, stepped in and stopped the fight in the third round after Johansson had knocked down Patterson seven times. With his win, Johansson became the first European to beat an American for a heavyweight title since Max Schmeling defeated Joe Lewis in 1933. This rivalry would define boxing in the early 1960s, as both men fight, would fight each other two other times. Patterson would regain the title in a rematch almost a year later, Yep, and Patterson would win the rubber match on June 13, 1961, as he knocked out Johansson in the sixth to keep the belt. And that was this week's top five, and coming up is our final segment of the show, which we call our shout out. And on this episode, we will highlight three famous stadiums that's located in the American Midwest, that are and which are three of the most famous and legendary in American sports history. However, these three iconic edifices also has a dark side. Details after this timeout. We here at the Sports History Network proudly partner with 26 podcasts, all revolving around the history of sports. But did you know that many of our hosts were sports history authors way before they started their shows? It's true. We've got Joe Ziemba, host of When Football Was Football. Joe Zagurski, host of Pro Football in the 1970s. Mark Morthier, host of Yesterday Sports. Tommy Phillips, host of Lombardi Memories. And Scott Adamson, co-host of From the 55-Yard Line. All these authors have many books for you to choose from. 
To check them out, go to our website at sportshistorynetwork.com slash sportshistorybooks. Pick up your copy today. And we're back, sports fans. And to finish the show out, we're going to do what we call the shout-out. And today we're going to send a shout-out to three stadiums that were located in the Midwest that are known for both great moments and also not-so-great moments in sports history. And all of them celebrated anniversaries of their opening to the general public. The first was in Chicago. Now, when you think of Chicago sports and the palaces where Windy City teams play in, you almost immediately think of Wrigley Field or Soldier Field or the United Center or the precursor to the United Center Chicago Stadium. Yet in this case, we're sending our first shout out to Comiskey Park. Yet when it opened on July 1st, 1910, it was known as White Sox Park. The stadium, located on the corner of 35th and Shields on Chicago's south side, it was the home of the White Sox from 1910 until the end of the 1990 Major League Baseball season, covering 80 years when the Shy Sox moved across the street from to New Comiskey Park in which it was later renamed Guaranteed Rate Field in 2016. It hosted the first Major League Baseball All-Star Game in 1933, and then later that same summer, it was the site of the first ever Negro League All-Star Game, and it would be a regular home for that exhibition game, which was called the East-West All-Star Game. Fifty years later, the Major League Baseball All-Star Game would return to the South Side, and that night, Fred Lynn of the California Angels hit the first and only Grand Slam home run in an All-Star Game. It had the exploding scoreboard, and for a short time, it was the only baseball stadium in the majors that had an artificial turf infield and a grass outfield, and fans would cheer the pail holes while listening to Nancy Faust play the stadium's organ in the upper deck. The Chicago Cardinals won their last NFL title game there against the Philadelphia Eagles in 1947, and then there was the disco demolition night. On, Je- on July 12, 1979, a Major League Baseball promotion event between the games of a doubleheader between the White Sox and the Tigers, where crates filled with disco records was blown up on the field and it went terribly wrong. Many of those in attendance came to just see the explosion rather than the games. Fans in attendance rushed the field after the detonation and caused a riot. With fans, with the fans' unruly behavior and the damage field damage the field sustained, the Sox had to forfeit the second game of the doubleheader. It was also the site of the night final game of the 1919 World Series when the White Sox threw the World Series and lost to the four weaker Cincinnati Reds. Eight members of the White Sox were implicated in the scandal that nearly destroyed baseball, including pitcher Eddie Sacati and outfielder Shoeless Joe Jackson. All, mem- all eight members of the team that were implicated in the scandal were banished from pro baseball for life. The park was torn down in 1991, and the site now serves as the parking lot for Guaranteed Rate Field. 21 years to the day after the opening of Comiskey Park, the Cleveland Indians played their first game at Cleveland Municipal Stadium located on the shores of Lake Erie. The stadium was one of the first multi-purpose stadiums built to accommodate both baseball and football. It was, of course, the longtime home of the Cleveland Indians 
of the of Major League Baseball and the Cleveland Browns of the NFL. The stadium dubbed the Mistake by the Lake had the largest seating capacity in the majors at 78,000 and held over 80,000 for football. It was where the dog pound was born. The site of the 1948 World Series where the Indians defeated the Boston Braves for their second World Series and their last championship. The Browns won NFL championships there in 1950, 54, and again in 1964 when the Browns shut out John United's and the Colts 27-0 for their last NFL title. The Beatles and Pink Floyd performed there. It was the site of the very first Monday night football game between the Jets and the Browns. And it was also the site of Frank Robinson making his debut as the first black manager in baseball. And also Lynn Barker pitched the perfect game here for the Indians in 1981. It was also the site of another incident of unruly fans that forced a, that forced a forfeited game in the 1970s. The Indians decided to have something called Tencent Beer Night on June 4, 1974, when the Indians hosted the Texas Rangers in an effort to boost game attendance. Due to the rottiness of intoxicated fans, the Indians were forced to forfeit the game against the Rangers, and for Cleveland sports fans, it has been the site of very painful memories. People forget People can't forget that living in the city of Cleveland cannot forget Red Wright 88 in the 1980 AFC Divisional Playoffs against the Oakland Raiders. Or they could never forget the drive, the 1986 AFC Championship game where, the, where Denver Broncos quarterback John Elway drove his team 98 yards to tie the game and force overtime and later won on Rich Carlos's field goal to advance them to Super Bowl 21. The Indians played their final game there on October 3, 1993, losing to the Chicago White Sox 4-0. Two years later, in a bittersweet moment, the Cleveland Browns officially closed the building for good when they defeated the Cincinnati Bengals 26-10. Soon after, the Browns would leave Cleveland and become the Baltimore Ravens. The Indians left Cleveland Municipal Stadium for Jacobs Field, now Progressive Field, while the Browns returned to the NFL in 1999 and, and played their home games at First Energy Stadium, which is actually located on the same plot of land as Old Cleveland Municipal Stadium stood. The third and the youngest stadium that opened its doors this week in history was Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati. On June 30, 1970, the Reds played their very first game there and defeated the Atlanta Braves 8-2 to open this quote-unquote state-of-the-art ballpark. In the 1960s and 70s, major cities around the United States were building multi-purpose stadiums such as DC Stadium, which later became RFK Stadium, Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia, Bush Stadium in St. Louis, and Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh. Cincinnati's Riverfront Stadium was built right at the height of this era of ballpark construction. These stadiums were often called concrete donuts because each were round and seemed sterile. The most sterile may have been Riverfront. To be honest, it seemed to have all of the charm and characteristics and character of a styrofoam cup. It was simple, no frill stadium, yet for the fans of the Reds and the Bengals, it was home. In the 1970s, the Reds won three National League pennants and two World Series thanks to Sparky Anderson and the Big Red Machine, powered by the likes of Pete Rose, Tony Perez, Johnny Bench, and George Foster. 
The Reds would win another World Series in 1990 and when they swept the heavily favored Oakland A's to win another World Series. The same year it opened, 1970, the upstart Cincinnati Bengals, who were an expansion team just two seasons before, won their very first ever game there, upsetting the powerful Oakland Raiders and carried that momentum all the way to an AFC Central Division title, making the Bengals the fastest expansion team to win a division title. While the Reds were winning championships during the decade of the 70s, the Bengals weren't up and down franchise. One of the strangest things about Riverfront, and I didn't realize this until long after it was demolished, when the Bengals played there, it was the only NFL stadium that didn't have painted end zones nor the team logo on the 50-yard line. Once again, sterile. But for some, but some of the biggest wins in Bengals history took place there. In the infamous Freezer Bowl, the 1981 AFC Championship game, where air temperature was minus 9 and the wind chill dropped to as low as minus 59, the Bengals advanced to their first Super Bowl, beating the San Diego Chargers 27-7. Eight years later, the Bengals will return to the Super Bowl, beating the Buffalo Bills 21-10 once again at Riverfront, where the fans had now referred to it as the Jungle and the team adopted the song Welcome to the Jungle en route to their Super Bowl 23 appearance. During their tenure at Riverfront, the Bengals defeated every team in the NFL at least once and had a 5-1 record at home in the playoffs. In 2001, Riverfront Stadium would change its name to Synergy Field and the Reds would play their final game there on September 22, 2002, losing to the Phillies 4-3. The stadium will be imploded on December 29th, 2002. And that's our shout out for this week as we talked about the Comiskey Park in Chicago, Cleveland Municipal Stadium in Cleveland, and Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati. And that will do it for this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And I would like to thank each and every one of you taking time out of your busy day to give us a listen. And if you like what you hear here, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and please follow me at my Twitter feed, which is historically sp2. And also drop me a line at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And until next time, I'm your host, Dana Augusta, saying thanks for listening and I'll talk to you soon. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football, 
through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians, you'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.